Today's podcast is being brought to you by the Restorative Community Coalition, a nonprofit organization committed to serving the voiceless, especially those silenced by civic trauma. We received contributions from the community to fund research, education, direct services, mentoring, case interception, court navigation, restorative justice, and more. Beyond our operating costs, our long-term capital goal is to build the Restore a Life Center, a hub for housing, employment, education, life skills recovery, including a farm for sustainable living. It is designed to help our community reduce civic trauma, mitigate conflict, promote rehabilitation, and encourage regenerative local living economic development. Please donate at the restorativecommunity.org. This is Joy Gilfillan, host of I Change Justice, where members of the Restorative Community Coalition talk civics with people who are living in the aftermath of an arrest. People confronting the compound dilemmas, ripple effects, and consequences on their family, friends, and taxpayers. Listeners' discretion is advised for this information can be disturbing and can trigger an emotional reaction. This is about lived experiences, discussed for taxpayer education, and to advance justice system reform. It is not to be used for legal advice. Hello, this is Joy Gilfillan, and I have two guests here today. One of them is Shanae. She's one of our case interception people working with us to help use restorative justice and restorative and regenerative ideas to help the people who get arrested and go through our our criminal legal system to recover their humanity. And then the second person we have is actually one of the people that is her, I'm going to call her a mentee. We're going to call her M for the purpose of an anonymity. But we're going to talk today about what are the consequences, the hidden consequences that happen to people who make a mistake, get convicted, go through the criminal justice system or what's what we now call the criminal legal system. They go through the consequences of crime and punishment, all these things. And in the end, they come out the other side and they, people think, at least I used to think that people were then considered free. They'd done their time. They got out of the system. But Shanae, you have 15 years or 16 years since you got out of the system and you're still dealing with the consequences what do you have to say about this whole thing? And what can you say about, you know, what have you learned and why have you decided to do case interception work with us at the Restorative Community Coalition? Well, first I want to say thank you, Joy, uh, for having me on again. I have to say that the last 15 or 16 years, there's been ups and downs. There's been times where things really worked out in my favor There's been other times, however, that have challenged my ability to stay positive. Um, You know, getting a job, even going to school, getting school funding, all those things require you to have a background check. Um, When I first got out of prison, I had never had a driver's license. And I was required by law to start paying back the fines or collections that I had accrued because of driving on a suspended. In fact, that was something I wanted to bring up is that I had driving on suspended charges 
even though I'd never had a driver's license before. <laughs> because I know, no, no. Now this is, this is bizarre. So you're saying that you didn't have a driver's license. You must have been driving when you committed this crime, I guess. Yes. Is that true? So yes. they, they filed a driving with suspended license as a charge against you, but you didn't even have a suspended license. So right. that's a weird thing to start with, but you still had a charge. You had penalties. You had consequences that you were going to have to deal with. So let's keep going. Yeah. So, so I had to do all the footwork myself. You know, uh, I didn't have a lawyer. I didn't have money for a lawyer. I didn't have family to help me. So I just made a lot of phone calls. I made phone calls to the courts. They, they were really um, helpful in the clerk's office telling me which forms to file, what to do next, uh, those kinds of things. And meanwhile, I'm in work release trying to figure out how I'm going to get my driver's license. So in and, other words, hold on. So hold on. I want to back up a second because yeah. I think when we started the conversation, we missed a piece. Okay. You had crimes. You had gone to prison. You were dealing, because we talked about this in one or two of our, our prior episodes where you talked about, you know, what's it like when you go to prison? What's it like trying to recover your life? What's it mm -hmm. like you come back? Now you're telling me a story specific to driver's licenses mm -hmm. because that's what we're going to talk about today. Is right. that how can you end up with a 99 year suspended driver's license when, you know, that, I mean, that's just bizarre. Like how, how <laughs> is that even possible? So when you got out, you had to do all this work to clean up your record because you had this charge against you. That was a departmental licensing type of charge. So right. start there. What were the penalties and issues that you were facing and what did you have to do to clean it up? I had, um, it started with driving without a license charges uh, and without insurance, obviously, because I didn't have a license. And then, and I don't know how many of those I had. And then it turned into driving while license suspended. And those were multiples as well. So how old were you when you were doing this stuff? Between the ages of 16 and 24. Okay. So you're not really an adult, you're, but you're acting like one. No. Yeah. I was homeless, living with friends, selling pot, you know, doing what kids that don't know anything else don't do, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I contacted the courts to find out what it would take for me to get my driver's license. And they told me that I needed to petition the court for something called adjudication, so what that means is that I needed to petition the court to have my fines taken out of collections before I could qualify to get my license, quote, released in order to actually go through the process of getting licensed, you know, the testing and all that stuff. So you're dealing with two different systems. You're dealing yes. with the legal system, which is a court system, which is in control of your fines and fees and penalties and what you were having to do to get back on the, on the street as an adult, having done your time, right? Mm -hmm. That's one issue. But related to that is the fact that the Department of Licensing controls licensing. So now you're dealing with a bureaucracy, which is, it has a separate system. Right. So what you're saying is that once you got out of prison, you're trying to recover your life, you had to go petition the court just to start the process of getting a license somewhere down the road. Right. Is that correct? Okay. Correct. And part of that 
is also carrying what's called high risk insurance. So prior to taking my driving test, I also had to go, okay, after I got my fines released from collections and made a payment arrangement, which started at $150, then I could make payments for $50 a month while I was working with the Department of Licensing to do the testing. But prior to that, I had to go to an insurance company and I had to pay for high-risk insurance. And I thought that was kind of backwards because I don't even have a license yet. How, how does that work? It was really confusing, but I did what they told me to do, which made no sense to me. And, and it all kind of fell together. However, it was, it was completely backwards in my mind. I felt like, yes, I, I needed to pay these fines and all that stuff, but I also knew that I'm going to have to have a job, which meant I have to drive somewhere. So the time and work release actually gave me that um, ability to pay, you know, because I wasn't working very far away from the work release. So I could potentially walk to work for now. So I started paying on the fines. And then once I got that done and got the letter from the court that actually said that I was in a payment arrangement and that my license had been released to Department of Licensing, then I take that letter to Department of Licensing, which then gave them permission permission, quote, to allow me to do the testing. And so then I started doing the written testing. And so, then, so yeah. hold on a second. So the hold on your ability to, to apply to get a license and to go through the adjudication at the licensing department mm -hmm. was released by the courts because they had arranged, they'd gotten the financial issues out of the way. So that was your first barrier financial rules and regulations regarding collections and and the court system and the whatever jurisdiction was in charge. So you had to deal with that to release the hold, which could allow the Department of Licensing to work with you. But once you got to the Department of Licensing, then there was a requirement for driver's insurance or for um, SRI insurance or some kind of insurance, high-risk yeah, insurance of some kind. SR22. Mm -hmm. SR22, high-risk insurance. Even though you still had never had a, a, a license and you still didn't have a license, then you had to pay for the insurance in advance mm -hmm. so that then you could go in and see if you could even get your license. Is yes. that that's like convoluted? <laughs> yeah. But that's what your experience, your real world experience was. Yes. Yes. So, so how long did it take you from the time that you were released? Okay, so you were 15, 16, 17, a young teenager doing stupid stuff in the beginning. You go to prison, you serve your time, you got out. Now you're going through this process just to try to become a licensed driver as an adult. Mm -hmm. From the time that you started that process to the time you finally got your license, how much time elapsed? And do you have a sense of how many dozens or hundreds or thousands of hours you may have had to spend and how much money it cost you to go through that process? Do you have even any recollection of that? I would say it took about 120 days. Took about, well, resources, probably upwards of a thousand to $2,000. And as far as time consuming, Oh gosh, in 120 days, it was probably 300 hours or more of me calling, going, filing, 
you know, and this is walking and riding the bus, trying to get it all done, you know. And you're working with their hours and their timelines. So you got it done over a three to four month period. Mm -hmm. But the amount of time and effort that it took, because there was no trailblazer, there was no one who gave you a sheet that says, this is what you do. You had to actually sleuth it out, figure it out. Boy, good on you to figure out how to do that, because that's hard work. Yeah, it was hard. It was eventually you got it. Yeah, absolutely. It was one of my, one of my biggest goals. I mean, you know, like I said, when I was in prison, I had the opportunity to kind of like reevaluate what my part in my life is and how I'm going to contribute to the world. And having a driver's license is like one of the main things. It's a, it's a basic need that most people need. I mean, Mm -hmm. you can't do anything without a driver's license anymore. I mean, and having a prison ID, it just, <laughs> that's just a whole issue all in itself, you know, but, um, but I was super proud of myself. In fact, I, I got my driver's license while I was still a resident in the work release. And I, I got it because my boss at the time was very supportive of me and my reentry. And he allowed me to use his car on my lunch break because, which was against the rules, by the way, at the work release against the rules. So I'm breaking a rule, trying to get my stuff together. And when I got it and I went to the work release and I walked right into the CSU's office and I said, I did something today. And he said, what? And I said, it's not bad. I don't think. And so I told him, I said, I got my driver's license. I've never had one. And he goes, you did. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, you can't drive while you're in work release. I'll put that in your locker. (laughs) And I said, okay, (laughs) but it was because I was doing all the right things. Right. I mean, and, and we know that we know that in, in normal life, even people who've never been through the system, like if you're doing the next right thing and you're being helpful to others and you're kind and you're considerate and you're respectful, right things, good things happen. Right. And so I was really, I was really blessed to have people that were in my life in those moments who saw that I was doing the right thing and then gave me the opportunities to do more right things. Right. And I don't think that happens to many people. It just doesn't. I was really lucky. And, um, and so now that I'm working with a client who, you know, this client also has never had a driver's license. Um, she was in a vehicle as a passenger when she was arrested the vehicle happened to be stolen, not by her. Her crimes are, you know, some of them are driving without a license, just like me. She's never had one, but she keeps getting these driving without a licenses. And yet they have sentenced her to no driver's license for 99 years. Not 99 oh. years. She's not allowed to get a driver's license. And that I looked it up. I, you better believe I looked up the law on that. And that is actually, there is a statement in Washington RCW codes that says that it is, that is not a typical um, consequence. Mm-hmm. That's not typical. It's non-typical. And so you better believe that I will be doing the same thing with my client, petitioning the court, going to collections, you know, figuring out what it is she needs to do because she's a mother now. She's an employee now. She has changed her life. She's done 180 degrees and she's doing every right thing that she can do. And keeping her from having a driver's license is not only going to affect her, 
but it's affecting her mother, her child, her friendships, her support systems, the ability to get her daughter to and from where she needs to go, the ability to get her to and from work. I mean, it's just, it's an, it's, it's moronic to me. It's, it's insane. It's actually irrational. It's insane. It's, yes. it's undue punishment for a crime in a situation that never should have progressed to this place. And it's a systems, <clears throat> it's actually a, a civic systems failure that creates, I mean, if I'm hearing it correctly, it's created massive, massive trauma, resistance and trouble in your life. I'm, and like I said, I'm going to call you M. So M, could you speak to the 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 emotional part of this, if you can do it without breaking down, of course, because people don't like to listen to people who are crying. But <laughs> let's go to the straight truth. The, 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 the horror, when you're in the system and you find out that you're not going to be able to drive for 99 years. I mean, that has to have been one heck of an emotional, like, hit over the heart that says, Oh my God, what am I going to do? I have to live. I'm still in my thirties, my twenties. I have to take care of kids, a family, a life. How in the world am I going to do that? Talk about that. And then what it may have felt like so that I can get you out of the misery part of it as fast as possible <laughs> into finding out that you have a case uh, navigator, a case interception person who's going to help you deal with the legalities of all that. What's that like? And what were some of the thoughts that had gone through your head over the past while that you've been working with one of our mentors? Okay. Hi. So, hi. so basically whenever I, you know, when I found out I wouldn't be able to have a license, you know, for 99 years. So on top of that, you know, I was like, how, you know, I'm already not able to have my license. So then when I found out I wouldn't be able to have it for that long, I I definitely, you know, it definitely broke my heart <laughs> uh -huh. um, because, you know, that's something that I was really excited to be able to get, you know, like the milestones, you know, being able to get my license. You know, well, I wasn't able to get that. And then, you know, I don't know. <laughs> the extreme, just know that I really appreciate your willingness to come on here and open your heart a little bit because yes. the, the point of this is simply to say to the people out here, the our audience that has no idea what's happening inside the criminal justice system, they have, and the criminal legal uh, complications, and they have no idea of what the humanity, the human cost to people is, and the the emotional trauma that you've experienced. So if you, if, and, and if you can't talk about the actual despair, the feelings of despair and, you know, hopelessness, talk about, you know, how do you get through it and what it feels like now, or what were the things that you had to think about when you realized that your mom's going to have to drive you everywhere. You're going to be codependent on public transportation. You're going to have to deal with all this stuff. Just share any of that that you want. Okay. Well, so, yeah, so basically I, I did have to rely on my mom, you know, mm -hmm. and, you know, it was a little, it's, it's really upsetting because like you guys said before, you know, I just had a baby girl and, you know, how am I supposed to be able to bring her to the doctor? And, you know, I just got hired the other day. How am I supposed to be able to get myself to and from work without having to rely on, you know, my mom or, you know, whoever has to bring me and pick me up, like, and it's, 
it's really upsetting because that's definitely something that I would like to be able to do myself, you know, like I'm starting a new journey, a new chapter in my life. And I feel like, you know, I'm grown. I'm, I'm, I should be able to, you know, I'm, I'm starting over with everything. So I should be able to, you know, drive myself around, drive my baby around, bring her to the doctor, you know, childcare, be able to go to the grocery store and stuff. Like I didn't do anything to like while driving, if I did, you know, if I was driving, I never caused no wrecks. I never hurt nobody. I was never like under the influence. I was never drunk. I never did anything so bad to deserve to not be able to drive or, or get my license for 99 years. I think yeah, that, so the, so the extremity, this is like a commercial. I'm sorry. I said, yeah, that, that's what I was saying. I think that, you know, that, it was way, way too much, it's way extreme, you know, to be punished like that when I didn't even do anything bad, you know, to get, you know, so I yeah, you yeah. didn't do a crime that was commensurate or re equal to the punishment that is being inflicted. Yes. And this is like an economic, um, it's financial bondage. It's an economic life sentence of sorts mm -hmm. that stops you from being able to move forward, that stops you from being able to care for others, that stops you from being able to move or, or take your family or anybody else up mm -hmm. the economic ladder. So it's actually contraindicated. I mean, it's not even logical. So in the middle of this, I'll bet you went into self-blaming and self-shaming and into a cycle of beating yourself up that how could I possibly have done this? And then you're, you know, there's one side of your brain that's talking about that. How could I have been so stupid that I got myself in this case? Mm -hmm. I must've been a bad person, but the other side of your mind is going, but this isn't even rational. This isn't even logical. How in the world, what in the world can I do? Is that, am I putting words in your mouth or is that sort no, of that's, like, that's completely that's exactly what's going on. Mm -hmm. like, you must have felt somewhat crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I, I, what did I do to deserve this? You know, I know I may have, you know, did something that, you know, wasn't supposed to do. Obviously, you know, I was driving without a license, even though I've never had a license before. However, they ended up with that. But it's like, in the end, you know, how, you know, people change, obviously, mm -hmm. you know, everybody, mm -hmm. you know, people you know, realize what's going on. You know, for me, I, after I had my daughter, that was my eye opener, you know, like, it's like, okay, now I'm getting all my stuff together. And, you know, I'm, you know, going day by day, you know, now I'm like, you know, I've been clean and sober for so long, you know, now I'm, I got my, my first job ever, you know, I'm like finally taking life serious now, you know, I'm trying to do it for me and for my daughter, you know, I'm just trying to make sure that I'm doing everything I need to. And just like, without, being able to, you know, without being able to drive is really a big thing to me. I feel like the prison, the justice system doesn't understand whenever, you know, people do change, you know, when mm -hmm. they do change, like what am, now, what am I supposed to do? Wait, 99 years to get a license, you know, like it's yeah. just, it's just yeah. way too much. It should make it to where, you know, some hoops that you could jump through or something or, you know, do something because how my, you know, it's just, it's really difficult. Like I, I just want to jump in too. And this is, you know, being a part of the RCC and um, being able to explore the different options that could be available that would yes. make the justice system a lot more streamlined and 
more restorative action type um, deal would be to maybe she would have to pay to go through driver's ed, like, like as if she was 16 or something. I mean, it's $600 or more to do that now, but it's worth it to her. You know, there's different mm -hmm. ways that they could, they could do this for people, you know, instead of, instead of scaring them. I mean, I feel like it's a huge power play, like 99 years, mm -hmm. you know, and it's like, come on, get realistic. I mean, really, because what's going to happen is we're going to have to go, we're going to petition the court, we're going to file the motions, and we're going to prove that why she needs it, you know, and she's going to prove how she's doing so good. And then what we've wasted all those hours, and all that time and money inside the system and outside the system, you know, it's just a waste of time and money. So there's no, so there really is no forgiveness process within the system. Once you get in the system, the legal and financial and structural constraints within the system continue to drive people down into this time wasting economic taxpayer wasting human potential wasting uh, it's almost like a, a death and punishment it's not just crime and punishment it's death and punishment spiral that you cannot get out of and you can't you can't break through without help and since most people now, this is, this is fascinating for me, Sinead, to actually have you be a person who's volunteering with the Restorative Community Coalition to help us help people who have been through some of these circumstances. Now, how, how many times do you actually have a case manager, interceptor, mentor type person who actually had to go through this? That's like a rare occurrence, right? Mm -hmm. So you happen to have some clues about how to navigate through this system so that you can actually put two and two together and get it done. And you were able to do it in 120 days for you because you were in an a work release facility. You were working with people who might have been able to give you some clues. Mm -hmm. You were getting clues as to how to navigate through and you were determined and you didn't have. You'd already done enough to know you were getting out. Right. right. So you were willing but now we have a new person. She's, she's got a young child. She's trying to recover. She doesn't have the knowledge, the wisdom, or the experience that you had even by a person going through it to have to figure out how to get out. You're here. You're helping. What are the kinds of things, Sinead, that you're having to do now that you've been able to save time to help your client get through this process? I'm doing all kinds of different things. <laughs> uh, I do. <laughs> I have to say that like doing case management with RCC as a quote independent contractor um, slash volunteer, it gives me a little more freedom than my typical case management positions that I've had in the past with nonprofits. Um, it gives me the ability to utilize my time as I see fit and, and, and then also tailor our time, my time with my clients to their specific needs in a chronological way. So depending on where they're at right now, like, we, like what we always say with RCC, we meet the people where they're at, right? I've worked in other nonprofits where you have all these like goal setting, right? We're going to set some goals. So we write it on a piece of paper and then we give it to our client and then we don't see them for two weeks or talk to them. And that is not going to work for clients who are coming out of jails, prisons, and institutions because they need a daily check-in. Sometimes when we first met, 
we checked in a lot. You know, we were checking in daily, sometimes every other day. We were seeing each other in person. And those are things to build a relationship with a client. That's another huge thing, trust. I mean, those of us who have gone through the system, um, we obviously have trust issues with, with not only superiors, but also with peers. And so building that camaraderie and finding our likenesses with each other, the first month or two was us getting to know each other, getting to know our stories, you know, um, then we're building that trust with each other. And, and then like sharing openly, I've never had a case management job where I was able to share my story openly. It was always like, you need to have boundaries. You need to have professional boundaries. Well, I am a professional, but look at my client. I mean, this is an example of what it's like when you kind of drop a little bit of the boundaries, you get real with people, you don't act like you're superior, you don't act like you don't know what they're talking about because you can't speak up about your own personal life. This is where I enjoy doing this stuff because my story can help save someone's life. So You're- you do, you do have the emotional experience and the wisdom because you've been there, done that already. Absolutely. And I do all kinds of things with her. Like, you know, if I, if I don't see her in person, we text, we text mm-hmm. back and forth. Uh-huh. We send emails. If she gets some information from a service provider that she's working with in the, in the community, she has questions about it. She will literally email me what was sent to her. Ask me what I think about it. I'll text her. You know, I mean, it's, it's like having a best friend. It's like having somebody that you always tell everything to and you, you feed, get feedback from, you hold accountable. And I also, when I'm working with clients, I'm not perfect either. And I tell my clients, like, I don't have a perfect life. I'm going to mess up too, but you're allowed to hold me accountable as well. If I don't answer my text or if I don't show up to something, I expect you to hold me accountable and say, Hey, what's going on with you? How come you're ignoring me? Whatever it may be. You know what I mean? Sure. That's important. And that, that is what builds trust between ex-convicts is being able to hold each other accountable. And then we have more respect for each other. Mm -hmm. You know, we have respect for our choices and then we're going to respect ourselves more. Then we're going to respect the process more. I mean, you can't get out of prison having all these trust issues, walk into a service provider, and then they give you all these assignments to do. And you don't know anything about the person who's telling you to do what you need to do. You don't even know if those assignments or goals are going to work for you because you don't even know if they work for the person who gave them to you. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's kind of the key. Did you do these? Did this work for you? Because I'm not going to go run around doing busy work when I already know it's not going to work for my client. Right. Yeah, go ahead. So I just heard something real interesting. And that is that, you know, you can't get out of prison and know how to negotiate the new world. But, you know, I want to talk about this because I had another client that we worked with quite a long time ago. And he said, he said to me, he'd been in like 22 prisons in 25 years or something. I mean, it was insane. (laughs) And, and he said, he said, it's after you get out of prison is when the work starts because he, and he said, (laughs) People who don't want to get out of prison, they don't get out of prison. Trust me, they just stay there because it's easier. So the work is getting out of prison. But as you were talking, I just heard the thought that when you get out of the concrete prison, that's one step. Mm -hmm. Then you go into this societal imprisonment, the the societal prison and the psychological prisons and Mm -hmm. the emotional prisons. 
And then the legal prisons and the financial prisons, each one of us is a different kind of a prison experience where you're, you're bound in by the rules, the regulations or the customs of the, of the context of that mm -hmm. particular environment. And so really what you've been doing with your client here, Shanae, is you've been helping to negotiate through these different square boxes mm -hmm. that have you entrained in these prison-like conditions. And you're trying to, it's like a maze. It's like going out into a corn maze that's got three dimensions on it. You know, yeah. you're trying to navigate Absolutely. through it to Absolutely. help the person to humanely and decently be able to navigate so you can reclaim your life. Mm -hmm. Yep, it is. It's, and it's overwhelming, you know, I mean, I, like I said, like I, my life's not perfect. I, just last night I was thinking, gosh, I'm just exhausted from all the daily life activities. I mean, all the expectations and the tasks that need to be completed on a daily basis are really tiring. And I have gained a lot of perspective on, it's funny because um, just a real quick side note, I've gained so much perspective being a mom and a wife and a PTA member and, you know, um, running my own business and volunteering um, of how it must have been like for all those moms that lived in my neighborhood when I was a kid and all of us kids would come barging in their house and eat all their snacks and all this stuff. And, and they were working moms, you know, like I had to reach out to one of them just last week. I sent her a Facebook message and I said, you know what? I just have to tell you, haven't talked to her. Listen, I haven't talked to her in probably 15 years. And I said, I just wanted to tell you how grateful I am that you were such a welcoming mother. You never yelled at us. You never, you know, got mad when we ate all your food or, you know, left the TV on or left our clothes everywhere. You know, I mean, it's just this realization that life is tough. If you have not been through the system and you have had a quote, good life where you haven't had any real crisis or trauma, it, it may be easier for you. I don't know. But for me, like <laughs> making the next right choice sometimes is really hard on some days. And it's okay that I say that. And I yeah. teach my clients, like, it's okay to have a hard day. It's okay to unplug your phone and just like pay attention to just your daughter and not talk to everybody and, and do everything. So, Em, I have a question for you to, to take it back. Now that you've got, you've, you've listened to this first 30 or 40 minutes here of conversation, and we've talked about the hurt that came in the beginning and the, the despair and the difficulty, as Shanae has been working with you to walk you through these things. It is hard. Like they right. But I, I mean, that's from your perspective, but, but Em specifically the client here, the person we're, yes. she's working with, how is this for you coming through this? What is happening to, happening to you emotionally? And does it actually give you some hope that there's something, something at the end of this thing that maybe you're going to make it through? Working with Shanae, you know, in, it did take a, a couple months, you know, get, get to know each other, you know, figure each other out, you know, uh, we ended up, you know, being, able to be comfortable with each other because, you know, just like she was saying, I, I personally don't like when I'm working with somebody who's supposed to, you know, who's helping me and, you know, and they act superior or act like, you know, it doesn't make me feel comfortable. I like how, you know, Shanae, you know, what's herself, you know, and her, you know, her being able to tell her story, you know, like mm -hmm. a lot of things, you know, we had a lot in common, you know, and I felt like I was able to look up to Shanae because not only was she, super smart at a lot of things. She did have a lot of knowledge and a lot of wisdom 
like with navigating through the justice system, you know, and it definitely made me feel a lot better because I don't know, like all the stuff that she knows, I, I definitely don't know. And by being around her, I am able, I'm learning every single day. Like I, there's a lot of stuff that I don't know. I am able to ask Janae and she's able to answer anything that I have to ask her. She's never not been able to answer any of my questions. So I feel way better knowing Shanae, especially with so, my stuff. So really, when you ended up in the system, you're in a terrain, in an ecosystem, in a language system, in a foreign country, basically, yes. where you knew nothing. So all you did in the originally was just say, yes, sir, yes, sir, get me out of here as fast as possible. I'll say anything to get yes. out. Yes. And now you're learning how to actually stand up to say right. something's not wrong right here. Yes. It's my life. I have to change what's going on. I can't be angry about it anymore. There's no point. Mm -hmm. I can't even be in despair about it anymore because there's no point. Mm -hmm. I can't be in judgment and guilt about it anymore. There's no point. Mm -hmm. The only thing I can do is start putting my feet one foot in front of the other and learn how to learn from somebody who's been there, done that. And I have to build my trust and resilience level. Now, yeah, again, yeah. I'm putting words in your mouth. Is this sort of what part of this learning process has been for you? Yes. It, you're, everything that you're saying is exactly what it's, is exactly what I would say. Um, what about your whole family? Right. So like, with, like I would just want to bring up too that this is a shout out to RCC. If you guys aren't familiar with us and the way we do casework, we yes. are a holistic casework um, process. So it's not just our client that we work with. We also work with their family. immediate family, mm -hmm. people who might be in distress. And that's what I've been able to do with this client is not only help her, but help her mother, help her aunt and help their animals. And, you know, it's mm -hmm. a, it's a whole family unit that we as RCC caseworkers, interceptors, navigators get to do. And that's, what's important. So you're also working and having to educate and help people who are in charge of the bureaucracies that you're going to. I know that you have sat on conference calls to DSHS or to the Department of Licensing or to whatever for literally minutes, if not hours, hours. <laughs> trying to get answers to systems questions that should be, shouldn't even be, I mean, there shouldn't even be a problem, but you've had to spend hours doing it. And that's, fatiguing and for somebody who doesn't even know it's possible it's like it becomes impossible so because you know it's possible to get through it Shanae because you've done certain things <laughs> you're willing to sit on those calls and when you get a hold of somebody on the other side who doesn't understand what you're talking about you perhaps I'm just speculating that sometimes you don't take for a no for an answer until you've asked the question a half a dozen different ways until the person on the other side understands the human problem you're trying to fix so that they can go back into their systems to figure out how to help you help the person. Mm -hmm. Is that true? Absolutely. A hundred percent. We have people <laughs> working in systems that don't have a clue how it works. And, and it's unfortunate because 
I hope that listeners, um, I hope you do work in a public service uh, job because I really want people to listen to these podcasts so that you can revamp the system and how it works for your clients. I know it's frustrating. I used to work in systems that did not work in the benefit of the client. They worked in the benefit of the organization to get more funding. And so it's really important that you try to weed out what is necessary for the client and what is necessary for your funding purposes and make sure that you're ethically making the right choices, you know, for your programming. I mean, it's super important. You are trading dollars to donuts. You know what I mean? And, and I see it, I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in clients' lives and other jobs I've had and all that as well. And so that is something to be very aware of. So the conflicts in communications, the conflicts in systems, the booby traps, the the trauma traps, the emotional traps, mm-hmm. the legal traps, <laughs> you know, it's like there's, there's little traps all over the place that we're not even aware exist until you're the human trying to get through the boondoggle, until you're the human trying to navigate a system to get to freedom, to independence, to capacity, to be able to be resilient and capable. Thank you both for being willing and courageous to come on this call. It's not easy to talk about these kinds of things because it seems so preposterous. I mean, it's just preposterous. It seems impossible. It doesn't make sense. Sometimes the hardest thing to do is to continue to try to get through things that don't make sense. You have a minute each. What would you like to say before we close? Do you want to say something, M, our courageous person? Do you want to say something first? She, she pointed at me, so I'll go first. <laughs> I wanted to say that I have really enjoyed and will continue to enjoy being a case uh, interceptor for the RCC. My client that's here today, I am beyond proud of her for you know, creating those boundaries that are healthy for herself, sticking to her word when she says she's going to do something, she does it. She's really good about speaking up. And, and that's something that I saw in her when I first met her is like, she's also going to be like me, like not taking no for an answer. Once she has the material she needs and the information she needs, she's definitely going to be able to help change our communities and in a positive way. And I'm so grateful that she's here today. So do you want to say something more? Do you like to say something in closing, Em, or are we complete sure. with the call? I just, I just wanted to say thank you guys for having me on here. I was a little nervous. I've never really done a podcast before. so. But I just wanted to say, too, I, I really appreciate, you know, being able to work with Shanae or with RCC. You know, I've, I've learned so much already just just working with her alone. You know, it's I've, I've learned so much. And I, if it wasn't for Shanae, I really don't know where I'd be today in my little journey. I'm sure I'd be somewhere, but not as far as I've made it. Like I've, <laughs> I would be somewhere. Yeah. I've made a lot of progress so far working with Shanae. So I really appreciate her and, you know, find get having these resources, you know, <laughs> what I, what I sensed when you said that I would be somewhere and my mind flashed <laughs> out to sea without a rowboat. <laughs> you know? It's like, we need to give people Tugboats, rowboats, <laughs> lifelines, whatever it takes to help yeah. people rebuild their heart, their soul, their being. It is really a pleasure to have both of you on the call today. Thank, Thank you, you so much. And audience, you know, help us out. Come yeah. join the Restorative Community Coalition. You can send donations. There's a commercial at the end of this thing. So have a great day, folks. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.
If you are a business owner or professional who wishes to sponsor our Restorative Community Coalition, give a legacy gift to the Restore Life Center Project, or support our fundraising events, feel free to contact us at info at therestorativecommunity.org. Thank you all for listening. Please share our podcast with your friends and family. Subscribe at Spotify, iTunes, or from your favorite playlists. At therestorativecommunity.org, you're invited to subscribe to our newsletter, connect through social media, or send us feedback on our shows. If you're inclined to help, you can volunteer, donate, learn more, and connect at info at therestorativecommunity.org. Contributing helps us empower those silenced by oppression so they can emerge into their higher potential. Thank you.